may be seated. We're on a we're starting a series ten, tonight and this morning, this afternoon with Latim. I've been preaching here all day, uh, really on the subject of the return of Christ, better known as the second coming of Christ. And we're we're entitling this particular uh, sermon series, therefore, and I'll get into why we're using that particular word tonight specifically, therefore, know him. And I'll get into why we're using that term and why I felt led to kind of start off in the fall with a series on the second coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. And I'll get to that in a second. But before we do that, I'm going to go through a few scriptures. And I just want to say that there's a lot of notes to take and you're not going to be able to keep up with me. And uh, we're going to be able to, if you go to the sermon part of our website, it'll, it'll show you and lead you how to link out to get those notes yourself. So if you want to do further study, you can take a few fragments down, but you're not, a lot of people come up to you. I didn't, I didn't see what happened on that 10th frame, that last verse you said. Well, let's not get into that because I got a lot to throw at you and I'll have to be thinking which one that is. Now, before I get into these scriptures, let me just give you a, a principle of biblical interpretation. And let me share with you that I feel like there's been some violations of that in, in church history and even in our modern times. When you're trying to come to the conclusion of a truth of a subject, you don't want to take an obscure scripture that has a lot of symbolism and can be interpreted, a, you know, 10 different ways and make that interpret the clear and plain scriptures. You want to take the clear and plain scriptures and you want to use them to interpret the obscure. You're a lot safer ground. In other words, the plain and clear scriptures is direct and obvious that this is what it's taught. That helps you understand what those obscure scriptures actually mean, not the opposite. And so sometimes when we're doing this, we, we confuse the obvious on a number of different subjects. And I think this has been coming to Christ. So more than, uh, than when it comes to teachings on the second coming of Christ. So I'm going to share some very direct forward scriptures by Jesus. How many people ever heard of him? Okay, and you know, he just said things pretty straight and direct, and I think we also need to understand what did it mean to the people of that time. What it meant to the people of that time is probably what it meant, because it was spoken to them directly. So we're going to go first into Mark 8, 38, and Jesus said this, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Now, adultery is it's a word used for unfaithful, this unfaithful generation that's parted from God and turned to idols, and and, and likened, actually, to unfaithfulness in a marriage. It's uh, society and mankind, the human race, is, a, is associated with that. And the simple uh, generation, we can actually be ashamed and embarrassed and not know how quite to communicate in the midst of being surrounded by a lot of people who have drawn them, their hearts away from God. We're ashamed of that. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Now, notice this. When he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And I want you to notice something. He's coming in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Doesn't it sound like it's too secretive? Doesn't it sound like you just wake up one morning and it happened, but no one even saw it? Sounds like it's pretty majestic, pretty glorious, pretty evident, and involves the glory of God. So if you want to know where I'm coming from in even my position, you may differ with me, and people might be sending me emails. I want to debate, and I don't have time really to 
to uh, actually spend time arguing with you because I got volumes of stuff I have to read and do research on a continuum. People give me books, so you just gave me the hundredth book I got to read like this month. So, you know, so, yeah, it's an embellishment. I know I'm speaking in hyperbole. But, you know, understand something. I really dig into these subjects. And uh, I, I know all sides of the angle. I respect where people might be. But I, I come from the school of thought. There's, there's two school of thoughts, if you've not ever been familiar with this teaching. And that is that there are three comings of Christ. First coming is when he came as a child. Second coming when he comes for his church and pulls it out of here. And the third coming comes finally to judge the earth. Three comings. I'm a two-coming man. I believe he came the first time, and he's coming the second time. And when he comes the second time, everything comes to the end. So that's, that's basically my school of thought, because I believe if you read these scriptures, it becomes pretty directive that way. But you may disagree. God loves you. We're both going to heaven. We can argue in eternity on that. But here we go. But he remained silent and made no answer. Now, he's in his inquisition now. He's, he's standing before Caiaphas, the high priest. He's being tried in the middle of the night illegally, by the way. He's silent, not, answer, not answering the accusations that come at him. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? In other words, are you the Messiah, the son of God? Now, some might think he's actually asking, are you the son of David? It really doesn't matter because what he's going to answer next is something he was actually not too open about completely, but he defines who he is at this point. And he says... He says this, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, which was a title associated in Daniel 7, 13, to the Messiah, and Psalm 110, verse 1, he's going to quote here, seated at the right hand of power, place of favor, of complete authority, and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus said this, and sometimes if you don't appreciate the context of things and the spirit of things, you don't appreciate how tough Jesus was. He's basically saying this, I am, and I am the son of man, and I have absolute control over the universe. I have been placed, and I am going to be placed at the right hand of the power of God with all authority. I'm in complete control, and I'm coming again for ultimate judgment. Now, do what you want to do with me. You got to get the brawl in the trial. You got to get this. It's not just little Jesus just getting whipped around. It's Jesus saying, you know what? I could call 10,000 angels on you, but I'm fulfilling the scriptures, so I'll put up with this. But I want you to know that I am the son of man that's going to sit next to the right hand of the power of God, and I'm coming with the clouds, and you're going to see me come with ultimate judgment. Now, carry on. I like the scriptures that way. I don't like a, just a soft Jesus that didn't have any wisdom. There's a fight in him for righteousness. I told Pilate, he says, the only authority you got is the authority my father gave you. And for a guy who's getting beat to a pulp, he sure talks a lot of smack, okay? But he can. He's God. He can do that. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, notice this again, in the glory of his Father, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In other words, with this coming is coming an accounting where every man and every woman who has ever lived is going to give an account for what they did with their life to God. It's coming with that. Then we have the apostle from the law. The apostle Paul said this, for we declare to you by a word from the Lord. 
In other words, Paul says, I didn't get this from myself. I got this from Jesus. And most likely, Paul got this from Revelation in his personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus came and appeared to him. Jesus talked with him. Jesus had him write one half of the New Testament. And he said this, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, there was there was some confusion that those who had died, believers who had died before the second coming of Christ, they were going to miss the resurrection. Now, you don't appreciate that until you study some of the cultural background behind this. When Gentiles and non-Jewish people lost a loved one, I mean, it was like going to the dark abyss, and I mean, there's just hopelessness. So that kind of a cultural hopelessness that kind of crept into their, their faith system as, as young believers was there, and Paul is just trying to bring comfort to them. He's saying, listen, for the Lord himself, now I want you to notice how he's coming. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Hey! I mean, it's not going to be a little, wake up and Sue's gone. Okay, it's hey! It's going to be loud. It's going to be a coming with power and with authority. With the voice of an archangel. That's pretty loud. Archangels just take out nations, okay? That's a pretty loud one. And then I think the sound of the trumpet of God is pretty loud also. And when this whole, I'm coming, it's me, is going to take place, the dead in Christ will rise first, okay? People are going to be coming out of the graves. So these Thessalonian believers won't precede them. They're going to catch up with them. I mean, every grave is going to be open. And boom, the righteous with the righteous on the earth will join in a big feast in the sky with Jesus. That's pretty exciting. This is exciting. I'm excited. Are you excited about stuff like this? Okay. All right. All right. All right. I like John. I like John the Apostle. You believe these guys that walked around with Jesus think they knew what they were talking about? Yes. I do. John said this Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. I don't know what my resurrected body looks like, and especially what my resurrected brain is going to look like. How many old-timers know that you don't think the same as you did 20 years ago? Come on. If you, how many growing old? You just notice that just not good. I, I see someone I've talked to with 100 times. I know their name. I may have done their wedding. I, I know them well. I've counseled them. I know their name. I've said it a 1,000 times, and I can't think of their name. I'll sit. I'm stomping right now. I'm sitting right here. I'm going to think about that person's name. I don't know why. I can say their last name. I know the name of their pets. I know everything else. But I got problems with my brain. I'm going to get a new brain. doesn't yet appear what we're going to look like. New body, new brain, everything else. But we know this. But when we know that when he appears, and I want you to notice on the first truth that John's saying here is that Jesus is physically going to appear again. It's not going to be an apparition or some ghost or some ghostly thing. There's a physical return of Jesus Christ. And we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. There's going to be an instant transformation of a new mind, spirit, and body. And all my, even my sinful nature gets to leave me. As he is, so I will become like that. That's called the last final act of sanctification. You imagine what it would be like if you didn't have a fallen nature? You didn't have any impulse of flesh in you. What that, what life would be like? Well, you're going to get there, okay? It's going to happen. It is coming. That's an exciting. And everyone who thus hopes, this, the second truth that John says, because he's going to physically appear, that's our hope. Now, God bless you guys raising families, starting businesses, doing this. You have goals to reach. But I think everybody here would agree with me. I'm kind of moving forward. I'm fulfilling the will of God. But man, 
It's tough. How many people would just say amen to that? I mean, life is tough, and then we die, one psychologist said. I mean, we just, I mean, we're winning. We're having victories, but, man, we're limping a little bit, and we got some battle scars, and we got some mountains to climb, and we, sometimes we're doing it by faith, not feeling, and sometimes we're tired and need to be resurrected by the Spirit, and we got enemies and demons and mountains in our flesh and people who don't, you know, really understand us and have their own opinion that's not God's opinion, and we're just going, and we got the... Irma, and we got politics, and we got North Korea. We got it's a it's not an easy life. It's not an easy life. But our hope is in a great future. Amen. When Jesus comes, this all ends. All those struggles. We got to get some hope going around. I'm gonna preach about that next week. And the third thing is that we purify Himself as He is pure. We purify Himself ourselves. Because of this particular truth. I mean, because this is a reality. I want to be prepared for this. So Paul goes on to say, that was John. But Paul, I'm going to go back to Paul. I like this. Waiting for our blessed hope. Notice what Paul calls this. Our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, this is called the blessed hope. In fact, we're going to give you a list of suggestions of good books to read. It will give you some hope. And one is called The Blessed Hope by Charles uh, uh, Ladd, which is one of the great theologians around, Charles Eldon Ladd. He's no longer alive, but he was a great theologian in the 20th century. This is called The Blessed Hope. This is not called a horror movie. Remember my wife and I, when we were first married, we... Went to the movie theater and watched the late, great planet Earth. I remember her waking up about 3 o'clock in the morning with nightmares and shaking. I got to pray for her. It didn't fill her full of a blessed hope and expectation. It filled her full of horror. It's a blessed hope. And this blessed hope doesn't send me into a place like, let's just go to the beach and hang there until he comes. It produces in me a zeal for good works. Because I'm going to give an account to him when he comes. So I want to do his will. There is going to come a reward. There's going to come an accounting. And so that produces in me a zeal for good works. Now, let's get into this. Why a series about the return of Jesus Christ? And why call it therefore? Now, let's go to just therefore. Therefore actually means as a result of. Or as a consequence of. Or because of. And so because this is a reality, this thing called the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ, as a result of that, it should lead me to do certain things. It should lead me to certain faith attitudes and certain faith actions that I'm going to give myself to. And tonight, therefore, know him. If, he, if everything I'm preaching about in these scriptures that I'm reading is true, the most important thing in my life is to have a relationship with him. I better know him. And this is what we're going to deal with tonight. But why a series on the second coming of Christ? Let me give you five things very quickly here. One, because this truth is at the core of New Testament doctrine. It, it, Jesus' teaching and his parable teaching, his parables, is filled with nothing but this particular subject. It's what he said to Caiaphas at his trial, saying, you're going to see me next to the right hand of God, I'm coming with clouds. He said, every tribe's going to mourn when they see me. He said, I'm coming with my reward. 
Well, I'm going to come in a time and an hour you won't expect it. I'm going to come with the holy angels of God and glory. And, and there's going to be judgment and reward and accountability. And everything's going to change. I mean, there's powerful truths to this. Paul talked about it. In fact, it, it, it is threaded throughout Paul's theology. You do not understand Paul's theology unless you understand his view of the doctrine of last things of the second coming of Jesus. You will not understand Paul's theology completely. you got to understand it. Peter. John, we read about it in 1 John, those, those verses that we talked about. Second, because it is the second event of the gospel proclamation. I've said to the church, I said this in a series we did this about six months ago on the gospel, that I said that the gospel is not advice. So I went to church, and Pastor Bob, he, he gave us four points on how to be better neighbors. That's advice. That's not the gospel. Pastor Bob told us how to, how to, you know, how to read the Bible or grow an understanding of the Word. That is, that's not that it's wrong or we shouldn't preach those things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is a proclamation of an announcement of an event that took place. It's the, it's the good news. It's the announcement. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of them who proclaim good news. I announce good news to the poor. It's a proclamation of two events. One is that Jesus died, was buried. In other words, he was legitimately dead and rose again from the dead. What's that mean? That means his punishment was received for your sin and my sin. He died in my place. He, was this, he, he suffered a substitutionary death for me, but because he was not just man, he was the God-man, he came out of the grave. Come on, that's good stuff. That means someone has gone to heaven before me. Amen. That means someone is representing me. That means someone's pouring his life into me. That means someone is comforting me and healing me and guiding me and changing me. I live not just by his death. I live by his life. Amen. You know, when Peter prayed for the man at the gate of beautiful in Acts 3 and he Stood up, we used to sing this song, and he went jumping and leaping and praising God. And man, here he was, he was hanging on to Peter and John, and everybody sees this man who was crippled his whole life, a beggar. Peter says, why do you look at us as if by our godliness or by our power we made this man whole? This man has been made whole through the name of Jesus now, why did Peter say it like that? Because the name of Jesus means Jesus was the source behind this healing. In other words, John didn't heal him. I didn't heal him. Well, how could he have healed him? did that you guys killed. Well, how could he have healed him if we killed him? Because he came back to life. Because he just wasn't a man. He was God. And you killed him. But he made this man whole. Come on, the announcement of the resurrection. Come on, there's good news. Heaven's been opened up to you and me. The second is this, is that there's a proclamation of a second event called the second coming of Christ. Now, why is that such a positive good news? Because like I said, and I'll talk a little bit more in a second, we associate this so much with terror and weirdism and this and that. When Jesus comes again, he's going to make all things new. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be the complete destruction of evil. 
that's going to be the final triumph of all those things that grieve our hearts and minds and have made life miserable on us and all the other close to 7 billion people on the face of the earth. He's going to put an end to all of it. And he's going to give us a new earth, okay, without hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes and everything else. And he's going to, a new heavens. There's going to be a new restoration, a new relationship with God forever, new bodies, new minds. Man, Jesus physically present with us, the, pre- the power of the glory of God. It doesn't get any better than this. Now, I enjoy life. I, I enjoy my marriage. I enjoy life. I enjoy, I enjoy doing things. I, I love adventure. I live an active life. I, I love life. But my life that I love is nothing compared to the glory that's coming, to that which is our future. It's the second event of the gospel. The third reason why is because it leads to zeal and a heart for God. When all of a sudden this becomes an absolute reality, and I understand that I'm going to live forever, I understand from this moment on, no one dies. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me will never die. How many people believe in Jesus, okay? Believe the words. In other words, you're living forever. You'll never stop living. Well, what about this body ain't doing too good? It's just a body. You will live forever. If that's true and heaven's been opened up to me, then I'm going to run to God. If God wants to be my father and adopt me and watch over me and take care of me and change me and fulfill his purpose, then come on, I'm going after that thing. And when that becomes a reality that one day he's coming for us and it's going to be even more glorious than this, why would I want the praises of the world? Why would I want fame and popularity? Why would I want wealth? Of course, we all want money to get by and be able to do things. Yeah, we understand that, but why would I sell my soul for it? Why would I give myself to a pleasure, you know, that satisfies me for a short season? That's the problem with pleasures. I mean, I love food. I mean, I really do. I, I love food. I love the taste of it, garlic and sauces and chilies. And, you know, and I enjoy a meal and a feast. To ask Sue, it's horrible. It's an idol. She's very practical. She just eats the same thing every day like paste. As long as it gives her some nutrition. And I'm saucing that sucker up and dripping. But it still only lasts just a very short time. Why would I give myself to that when this is so much better coming? And that's the, my next point is this, is that we're doing this series because if it is true, it should lead to a lifestyle with an eternal focus. Therefore, basically, focus on eternity. There is a future kingdom coming, folks. There is a future, absolute, visible demonstration of heaven coming to us. There is a future feast that we want to get people to. It's a real feast that we want them to come to. It's a feast. And we're inviting all to come to this party. And we need to announce it like there's a party. And you need to come to this party. I'll never forget, Wayman and I knew we had this couple out of Canada. They were actors, and 
They were they're great evangelists to young people. It was back in the 80s. We did crazy things in youth ministry in the 80s. But they were actors, so they did a lot of mime and stuff like that. So the guy dresses up in a tuxedo with a big, long penguin, you know, uh, coattail in the end with a top hat, with a cane. He goes down to Madison High School with a gazoo. And all the kids are coming out, and here's this guy. looks the goofiest guy in the world. He's got his gazoo, and he goes, doo, 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 with his little gazoo. And, and, and all of a sudden, he just starts yelling at the kids coming out of the campus, you guys coming to the party? And all of a sudden, he gathers like two, 300 kids. There is a party tonight. And everybody's like, oh, the party, the party. You go to the party. And the kids are all, yeah, where's the party? Heaven, man, heaven. <laughs> and then, of course, he knew how to deal with the crowd. You know, one kid says, I'm an atheist. An atheist? This guy is an atheist. And he was just mock the guy to death. And then we go, what's an atheist? He just worked the crowd, but he made that gospel so positive, like we're coming, remember that guy coming to a feast and it's a party? Come on, we got reality. Leonard Ravenhill, one of the great preachers of the 60s and 70s, says you gotta, you gotta have eternity written on your eyelids. In other words, that's what you're thinking about. That's what you're focused on. I mean, what counts for eternity? What counts for the ages to come? It's not whether I, uh, you know, I made this much money or I achieved this or my name was known here. The problem, and I love what my son-in-law Mort says, he says, why do we want to be like celebrities? They're miserable people, yet we worship them. We want to be like them, but they're so sad and miserable. He's absolutely right. And the problem with popularity, no one stays popular. I was with the last man standing the other night. Tim Allen did some things. I love the Broncos and Gordon Lightfoot. Well, most of you millennials don't even ever heard of Gordon Lightfoot. The guy with a big belly, Gordon Lightfoot is cool if you were in the 60s. But he's probably some old guy with a big belly right now that can hardly sing. Yeah, he was cool when I was dating Sue, but it's not so cool now. You know, we just don't stay on top. Why would I give all those things, you know, but the eternity away for just these things that just last for a moment? The other reason why we're doing this is because of overconfident speculation but from some Bible teachers are trying to shoehorn things and take the obscure to explain the plain and say this is this and this is that and this is this. This truth has turned this event into a modern horror movie. And as a result, we ignore this truth. There's pe people are not preaching this anymore because they don't want to put terror in people and fear in people. I had to do a lot of processing with people through this because of past wounds and even horrible experiences as a child when this was taught, and they went to bed with nightmares. So when they think about the return of Christ, they think something like this. They kind of think this context. Instead of a glorious appearing and a, and a blessed hope. You know, lyrics like Larry Norman's, I wish we'd all been ready. Life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, that's the blessed hope. That's the glorious appearing of our God and Savior. Now, Bob, do you, you know, what about the beast? And what about the Antichrist and the false prophet and the harlot? And, you know, what about 
the rebellion? And what about the plagues? And, you know, what about this? And, and all Armageddon. Come on, what about Armageddon? And, and what about these things? Well, you know, there are some things we have to answer on this, and there will be a rebellion. The problem is when those things are stated, it don't, they don't break them down for us. Paul actually says in the first letter of Thessalonians, I mean, second Thessalonians, he says, that which I taught you when I was with you. Now, here's the problem. We don't know. He never clarifies what he taught them. And so we'll never know what he taught them because we don't have it down in record. And so people overconfidently shoehorn things and make things appear to be this and that. Let me just give you some facts, and I'll tell you why I'm going to do this in a second. Here's some facts. How many people lived at least part-time in the 20th century? A few of us did. How many people were born before 1960? All right, all right. There's a few of us. Okay, we got about eh, eight of us here tonight. How about after, before 1970? 1980? 1990? Anyone here born in the 90s? You did? You did. Wow, all together. All right. Andrew, you did? You did. Wow. All right. Here's some facts. 123 million people died in wars in the last century. 123 million. There were 8 million deaths in the last century due to natural disasters, and it cost the U.S. economy $7 trillion in economic damage. There's a half a billion people, half a billion people, who died in the 20th century of smallpox. There are 8.5 million people that were murdered in the 20th century. There were 45.5 million Christian martyrs, directly or indirectly. There were 35 million people from the time of the epidemic of the HIV virus to today, 35 million people who died of AIDS. There are one million people who die every year from malaria. Now, now Bob, why, why, why are you kind of throwing those facts at us? Well, you got this dystopia thing, and you feel like it's going to end that way. But I want you to know, outside of developed nations like the United States or Europe or some other places, this kind of scenario really is an ongoing experience. And we tend to interpret life through the glasses of Western developed American culture when other people are going through things that we would think would be the signs of the end of the world. My, one of the things I want to do tonight with Sue, we've been talking about this in the last few days, is Angelina Jolie just came out with a new movie on Netflix called They Killed My Father First, or They First Killed My Father. And what happened is that she was doing that movie uh, Laura Croft Tomb Raider. She was up at Sim Reap, Cambodia, the tombs up there in, in a place called Angkor Wat. And she was doing a tourist thing. She was in some town, and this lady was just doing street vending and sold her a book that she wrote, that she was a survivor of the Khmer Rouge uh, communist revolution in the 70s. And her parents were killed in it. The Khmer Rouge came, and they stripped Cambodia and actually committed genocide on 3 million people. Actually, they took out 20% of the population in four years. And so she grabs this book, Angelina Jolie doesn't know anything about the history of Cambodia or anything like that. She reads it, and her life's changed. And based on this woman's book, she did a movie. It's on Netflix, so we're going to watch it when we go home. I don't know what it's like. It's going to be extremely intense and murders and sad and the atrocities, but we have been there, 
And we have seen the places where they held them and the bloodstains are still there and the chains are still there and the skulls are still piled up. We didn't go out to the killing fields, but we, played, we went to the storing places that prepared them for the killing fields and saw the torture places. And, and when all that was taking place, Sue and I were getting married. We were doing the Karen Carpenter thing. You only just begun to live. They were just kind of doing our thing and our goals. And meanwhile, meanwhile, people are being killed by the thousands and the millions. You see, we have a tendency to think if it's not happening here, it's not happening. Someday, someday, maybe we're going to get martyred. They're getting martyred now. Just read an article of a brother in Afghanistan waiting for execution. He was converted to Christianity, and they caught videos of some Western guys baptizing him, and he's going to get hung. He's going to get hung for being a follower of Jesus. I've met people eating kebabs with them who are talking about smuggling Bibles, knowing they're going to get caught, knowing they're going to get martyred. I mean, you don't know if they're going to live. My friend Jess Strickland prophesied to a guy in northern Nigeria. He says, you're going to die a martyr's death prophetically. And the guy, sure enough, got martyred. So it's not like it's going to happen. It's happening. It's too late to worry about the future. The future's arrived. But at the same time, when all this is going on and, and things are taking place and massive suffering and undeveloped nations and everything else, God's moving by the power of his Holy Spirit, his promises are real, as real to them as it is to us. And the stories of preservation, and the stories of deliverance, and the stories of healings. I remember having communion with, eight, with 30 plus Persian believers out of Iran who came into Turkey to get trained. And I had it, they're doing communion, they're holding their emblems. I said, I want each one of you to go around and I want you to tell me what Jesus has done through you. This is the most persecuted church in the world. People that have their teeth all knocked out from interrogations. People were beaten, they couldn't walk. And I'm doing communion with them. And this one lady, very dignified Iranian lady, says, I have prayed for 80 people to be healed, and all 80 people were healed. You see, God's still working. He's still building his church. The mountain, in the last days, the Mountain of the Lord's house shall be established and all nations shall flow unto it. And they'll go up there and they'll say, teach us of his ways and we'll walk in his path. The glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the glory of the Lord shall, shall, shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so we see thousands daily converted to Christ in China. Cambodia, the grandchildren these people have suffered, I have had the honor of preaching to them, leading the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prophesying over them. They're getting saved by the hundreds. Some of you saw my Instagram where I, I had a young lady with my arm around her. She's a 26-year-old single mom, a widow, 26 years old, only saved two years. She pastors three churches that consist of 400 people. Well, why would they take such a novice? Because that's all they got. This one church is trying to plant 90 churches this year alone. Because we're talking about God doing mighty things, but in the midst of all sorts of stuff. In fact, Jesus said this. When he comes, yeah, you got this deception, and you got this system, and you got opposition, and you got an antichrist spirit, and you got this, and you got the hurricanes, and you got the earthquakes. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But he says it will be just like the time of Lot. 
It'll just be just like the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were working. They were having wedding feasts. They were doing life. Just like my wife and I were doing life when all those people were being wiped out in Cambodia. You see, life will go on. And so what we need is to have great-hearted faith, alligator skin, and know that God is faithful to us. Amen? Amen. Now, what are the basic truths concerning the second coming of, of Jesus Christ? Here, let's get going on this. Number one, it will be, it will be full it will be the full and final establishment of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says that, I mean, Jesus said this when he came. He says, the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, but when he comes, it's going to be fully fulfilled. And it says, and, and, and then comes the end, Paul said, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Come on, he's going to put an end to evil. Amen. It will be a glorious, majestic, and obvious. He said, then will appear in the heavens, in Matthew 24, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I mean, it's, there, it ain't going to be no secret coming. It's going to be a loud coming. Three, it's, it will be God's final triumph over evil. We talked about that. Second Thessalonians, he will... He, he was coming with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on all his enemies. Now, God loves people, but he will eventually judge those who oppose the gospel at his second coming. There will be a judgment. It will be sudden and unexpected. Luke 12, 40, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour. You, he's talking to his disciples. You do not expect. Now, I know there's some people who got all their charts there, and they got their things, and what are you doing? Well, I'm getting all set here. Jesus is coming today. My charts will say this. Well, maybe he's coming for you, but he didn't say that we would know. No one knows except the Father. So what do we do? We live life to its fullest. We go after the will of God. We fulfill the purpose of God. It'll feel like it's delayed. He said this in the parable of the master coming to the wedding feast. Jesus says, if he comes in the second watch, now if he's using Roman terminology in the book of, in, in the book of Luke, then it would be from nine to midnight. If he's using Jewish understanding of the second walk, it would be somewhere between 10 a.m., I mean 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Or if he's coming in the third watch, which would be in Jewish time, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's interesting, Jesus says if he comes in the first watch. He didn't say the first watch. He says if he comes in the second or the third watch. In other words, he's not coming at 8 o'clock at night. What happens if he doesn't come till 2 in the morning? Or even worse yet, what happens if he doesn't come till 6 a.m. the next morning? Those servants that were ready shall be rewarded. Blessed are those servants, he actually said. And so we live in a time, where is Jesus? Come on. 2,000 years. Where, where is Jesus? Well, we might be somewhere in the second watch or the third watch. Or, well, my, my job is to fulfill his will. I just know it's a reality. It will, it will test us to see if we can stay devoted while living through the cycles of life. 
Jesus said, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He didn't say drugs. He didn't say idols. He just said the care of this life. You're weighed down with plugging in and plugging out and paying bills. And I know those are legitimate pressures. But sometimes it's, it can get you where it's all consuming. I know what it's like to come in the house of the Lord with not a dime in your checkbook. I know it is to drop money in the offering. That's the last money you have. and You're not getting paid for five more days. You don't know how you're going to feed your family. I know those feelings. I know what it is to want to encourage your kids and their talents. You know, Natalie was a synchronized swimming. There's a sport everyone's into. We didn't just go up to Ridgefield to a game. You know, Sue had to fly to New Orleans to watch her swim. Okay, I know those things. When you're doing these types of things, it'll cost money and time and everything else. But you can't let it steal your focus. You can't let it steal your heart. In fact, if it does, get rid of it. And so my heart not be weighed down with everything, that we try to live a somewhat uncluttered life. Now, I'm not saying don't pull your kids out of Little League. I mean, do life. But make sure that you're not being weighed down. I get concerned when the children's ministry tells me that 50% of the, the couples that have small children that use our children's ministry attend City Harvest Church only one time a month. Now, I'm not into, hey, you get, you get clicky at brownie points every time you turn up. But I want to say this. I know you got to go see Uncle Harry, and, you know, you got that little family weekend getaway because you're tired, and I know that, you know, we have certain things that take place. I understand all those things. But I want to say this, that there's a direct correlation between pressing into the people of God and coming to hear consistent teaching and your growth as a Christian then when those just kind of fade out and it's not a part of your discipline. Jesus went to the synagogue every Sunday, Luke 4 says, and it says this, as was his custom. There is a spiritual discipline of getting to the house of God. I remember one time Leslie was at a Saturday night service, but she was part of the little ministry team. She was only like eighth grade. She goes, Dad, I don't want to go to church on Sunday. He said, Leslie, you got to come. Oh, Dad. I said, Leslie, listen to me. Go get dressed. And Leslie had this beautiful tear coming down her cheek. Get dressed, you're coming with me. She comes, and we had Violet Kitely, who's a great prophetess of the Lord. She came, and they came that morning. Violet picked her out and prophesied her destiny to her. You never know. You never know. Sometimes people say, I didn't go to church. I was just home watching TV. Ah, man, there's an angel showed up, and he was asking about you. <laughs> That's too bad. That was really too bad. That's too bad. We had a prophetic assembly where Charlie Sweet was here, and there was a couple that was home watching TV, actually had their movie in, getting ready to watch, and he describes the name of the couple, the name and the situation, and so they're not here. He says, I got a word for them. They just had twins, and he had a word for them. They got them on the cell phone. We got on the screen. They're watching TV. Here, here, the prophet from the church right here is calling them and says, this is what's going on. In fact, you've just, I see you have twins. He said another way, he talked about yoke, yoke splitting in two, and, and, and he, and he uh, talked about twins and read their mail, and they're just having popcorn trying to watch TV and ditch church, but they had a divine appointment. <laughs> we can't let our hearts be weighed down. 
I got to get moving here. He lets, lets you get released from all this. It leads us to be spiritually ready. The whole parable of the virgins, five with oil, five with not, it was dealing with readiness. That's the principle of that particular parable. Don't run into deep meanings on those. It's just that five were ready and five were not. I want to be ready. And it's only known by God when it will take place. Watch, therefore, for you, me, you, neither know the day or the hour. So we can't have books like 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 1988. It's not going to happen. I went camping on that day when he was supposed to come. Why? Because Jesus said, you won't know. So I wasn't worried. You know what I am worried about? Not fulfilling the will of God. That's what I don't worry about, but that's what I do focus on. Now let's talk about the scary verse. Can we talk about the scary verse? I'm going to give you a scary verse that you'll say, yeah, that is a very scary verse. That, that verse really scares me. Here we go. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, how many of you have had this thought in your mind, this scary thought? Am I one of those believers who thinks he knows Jesus Christ and has a relationship with him? But when he comes and I stand before him on the day of judgment, I'm going to find out that I never really had a relationship with him. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. How many people have ever read that verse and you had that question in your heart? Raise your hand. That's the scary verse. See, that's the scary verse. Now, as a pastor, I want to deliver you tonight. I want to put some comfort and some peace in your spirit because we're going to make this series on the second coming of Jesus Christ a serious focus, but we're going to make it also a party. There's a blessed hope, not a cursed hope. It's a, it's a glorious appearing. We look forward to it. Paul couldn't wait for it. Paul said, come on, Jesus, Maranatha, Come. We've got to have that type of confidence. But let me just deal with this scary verse. You've got to read everything in context. This is the end of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you didn't take this verse and associate with that, but if you read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, it's all one sermon. He's talking about the will of God in the Sermon on the Mount. He says those who teach People to keep the least of the commandments are going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about how to forgive and how to live pure and how to, how to go the extra mile and how to do things without getting credit and allowing the Father to reward you. It goes on and on a number of different areas and how to live this thing called the will of God. And then in verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets. Beware of those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says, you will know who they are in the very verse before this verse. You will know them by their fruits. In other words, a false prophet will not be discerned because he, he, he lacks charisma or miracles. That's the problem with a false prophet. There are miracles that are taking place. So that's not how we discern. Well, he didn't have much going on. He may have some power, but you discern the false prophet by their lack of character, not their lack of power, their lack of character. I can show you the Didache, a second century church document. 
that if a prophet came to a visiting church in the second century and he asked for money, he was a false prophet, and they quoted Matthew 7.20. If he wanted to soak the church, he was out. No matter what his words were, no matter how powerful he was. And so Jesus ties this verse to what he previously said. People will cast out demons, prophesy in my name, heal the sick, and I will say, I never knew you. In other words, they never had a heart for God. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's the question. How many of you hear it of Jesus? Your heart's desire is to break the commandments of Jesus. Anybody want to just volunteer and say, that's me, I just love, and that's my plan, that's my passion? No. That's what I want to do every day? No. Then that scripture, outside of a good warning, is not for you. He's not talking about you. I know people who lie through their teeth. I know people who name the name of Christ will cheat you like no one's business. I know people who will who will corrupt the word of God through peddling the gospel, that you would be shocked how they do that. That scripture is not for you. It's for the false prophets. It's for those that we know them by their fruits. Now let's deal with this. Let's deal and bring this to a close. Let's talk about John's assurance test. John's assurance test. What John? The apostle John. First John, beautiful book. First John, one of my favorite epistles. I want to give you why this letter is written. And how do you know this? I, when I read it, I don't get what you're getting like that. You've got you to do a thing called internal evidence. As you look at what's being read in the book, you can tell why this book was written. What happened? There was a heresy taking place in the latter part of the first century when John had his what's called Johannine churches. And this heresy had to do with the nature of Jesus Christ. One of the heresies, most likely, is an early form of Gnosticism that that Jesus of Nazareth may not have been the Messiah, that he himself wasn't the God-man. The spirit of Christ came upon him, but he wasn't Christ himself. And so they were messing with the nature of Christ. And the second thing they were doing, they were actually encouraging loose living, that it didn't matter keeping, practicing righteousness and keeping New Testament morals. That was irrelevant. That really was a part of second century Gnosticism. And, and what happened, people left the church. People left the churches. That's why John says they went out from us because they were never of us. And so he's trying. These guys are shaken. Am I really saved? Do I really know the truth? Do I really have a relationship with God? And he really addresses five areas where they could know for sure that they know God. I want you to take this test with them. John's assurance test is this. The first is this. Do I have an orthodox faith in Jesus? What's orthodox? Orthodox is that which was was given to us in the Gospels, given to us in early church councils, handed down to us, the faith that was handed down to us. A lot of people say, well, I don't listen to those third century councils. I believe in the Bible. Uh, you know something, that the canonization of the New Testament didn't take place till 385. Okay, those guys handed you the Bible. Okay, and so you can trust some of those early canons because they dissected the scriptures and they came to these conclusions. John said in John 1.1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Come on, we touched it. It was flesh. It was, it was us. It was in the trenches with us. 
concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, he was with the Father in eternity, and he was manifested to us in the flesh. Well, I, do you believe in that kind of Jesus? You know, we dropped a missionary here about four years ago who was a very good friend of mine. And the reason we did, he had a great heart in reaching Muslims. But, he, but in, in Islam, to say that Jesus is the Son of God is insulting to them. Because God means that God had sex and he can't have a son, so it becomes a big rock of offense. And so his belief is that you can be converted to Christ without believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And then down the road, you can adapt to it. Well, we couldn't buy into it. I, I even spent time with him in Malaysia. I, I, went to, I even interviewed some of these guys in this particular movement, Muslims, who kind of stayed in Islam but said they were believers in Christ. I had dinner with one one night, and I just couldn't buy it. We had to eventually cut it off. You got, do you have faith in the orthodox position of Christ? The second is this, do I trust that what, that what Jesus suffered, Christ suffered on the cross, secured my salvation. When 1 John 2, 2 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who was a propitiation. In other words, he was a mercy seat. He was the one who appeased the wrath of God, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole earth. Come on, the blood of Jesus if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, the first chapter of John, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Come on, do we believe that what he did on the cross is how we get to heaven, his work? The third thing is this. <clears throat> do I pursue to keep his commandments? Do I pursue? If we say, he said in 1 John 6 and 7, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. I live a lifestyle over here, but I say I have fellowship with them over here. John says, come on, we lie and do not practice the truth. Obviously, this teaching that drew people away said, come on over here to this new Christ where we can just party on. He says, listen, we got to walk in truth and practice righteousness. He said in, 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 in John 3 and verse, in verse 5 to 7, no one who abides in him Keeps on sinning. Now, we all trip up and sin, but it's not sinning as a lifestyle. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Wow. I've had people, you know, my son, he gave his life to Jesus, but he's out there and living like the devil. But you know what? He has a relationship with God. No, he doesn't. He's living like the devil. He doesn't have a relationship with God. That refutes it. Paul, John's saying your assurance is this. Do you have a heart? To obey him. Do I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? First John 4, 13, John says this. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the Spirit. I'm talking deeper than speaking in tongues. If that is a manifestation that you've experienced at this point. I'm talking about, are you sensitive to sin? If the Holy Spirit is in me, then the Holy Spirit makes me sensitive to sin. You know, there's been times I'm thinking, you know what, I'm just tired of the day. I don't even, I don't even, then today. I don't, I don't feel good at the end of the day. I don't even, I don't even, we make lousy sinners. I mean, we try to sin, but we make lousy sinners. We just feel miserable. Why not? Why not? Well, it doesn't feel good. The Holy Spirit says, what are you, what are you doing? 
I'm holy in you. Quit it. Stop it. You ever tried to sin? You just can't even sin. You can't even feel good about it. You're just miserable. <laughs> Do you have a passion in you to please him? I just want to read the Bible. I want to please him. I want my words to please him, my attitude to please him, my preaching to please him. I want to please him as a husband. I want to please him as a father. I want to please him as a pastor. I want to, I want to please him. Is that, is that your heart? Is that your heart in your venue, in your sphere, your calling? And also, are you aware that you've encountered heaven? I've told you a story a hundred times, but it's so true. My friend that worked in a sawmill, he way up in Elma, Washington, he just got saved. He was trying to explain to another logger that he got saved. He goes, how do you know you're born again? How do you know you got hit in the head with a mallet? You just know. You just know. You just know. Just, I just know. I just, I just know. Some, something's hit me. Something's opened my eyes. Something. I remember, I remember... Before I ever prayed the sinner's prayer, I was like having these epiphanies of Jesus. God was like taking things off of my eyes. There was a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Do you love Jesus? I guess so. I think so. I, I, yeah, 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 I prayed that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about, relationship with the Holy Spirit. I appreciate Ben Meckel and what he's done with our youth group. He's got those kids plugged into the Holy Ghost. Those kids are being rocked by the Holy Ghost, stirred by the Holy Ghost. I mean, changed and transformed by the Holy Ghost. And the last, do I love people? Do I love people? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You show me someone who's not a very loving person, very selfish. Let's come on, band. Come on up here. And they just cruel and selfish and mean I'll, I'll, I'll reveal someone to you that may not be born again now they just got an attitude well they got an attitude an unconverted attitude how do John says how do you know what's your assurance do you believe in Jesus in the way you're supposed to believe in him do you do you believe that what he did on the cross secures your salvation do you practice righteousness to please him? Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit where you're listening to the voice and allowing the Holy Spirit to change you? You haven't arrived, but you have, you're, it's working on you. And do you love people? If you do, five is the number of grace. You're experiencing the grace of God. You don't have to worry that in that last days he'll say to me, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because you're working righteousness in your life. And your fruit is being evidence that you're moving forward. And you can be at peace. But if you don't, and if he's coming, therefore, know him. You can have a relationship with him. Let's stand to our feet.